Today is the 13th of September, 2014, and this is episode 141. This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is new, highly experimental, and we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Let's Talk Bitcoin. We're going to make this a fun show. We're basically going to do um, a news roundup and just talk about some of the things that have been happening recently in the world of cryptocurrency. And it's always an interesting time when we do that. Ready to go? Yeah. (laughs) Cool. So, okay, the first thing that we wanted to talk about today was, man, altcoins are really just taking a hit lately. I mean, everybody's kind of been talking about the price of Bitcoin being down around, you know, $500 or below. And we, we don't like to focus too specifically on the numbers on that and analyze them and ooh, what does it mean? But um, Bitcoin has been trading lower than it has if you go back six months. And altcoins have been also trading a lot lower than they have been, particularly some of the really popular ones like Litecoin and Dogecoin, right? It's been true for a very long time that the altcoin market uh, tends to mirror in close proximity or to be elastically connected to the price of Bitcoin. So it is expected, I guess, for altcoins to decline when Bitcoin declines. But I think what we've seen this time is where's Bitcoin declined um, and has been a bit bumpy lately. It is currently uh, quite a bit lower than it's been for a while. It seems that altcoins magnified, I guess, that effect and declined even harder. And some of them dropping dramatically and disrupting, if you like, the ranking of, of coins and some of the others dropping, but not so dramatically. Now, if you're interested in looking up the numbers, um, probably one of the most useful sites for that is coinmarketcap.com, which shows the, the various coins, their relative ranking, if you like, in market capitalization based on the current exchange rate to the dollar vis-a-vis each other. So Bitcoin is currently number one with uh, $6.3 billion in market capitalization. And market capitalization, to explain that, that just means multiplying the current US dollar price of a coin times the number of coins that are in circulation. Uh, Litecoin is at $154 million. The ranking goes Ripple, BitsharesX, NXT, Pearcoin, and Dogecoin. So just to look at the first, um, might as well cover the next three, Darkcoin, Namecoin, MadesafeCoin. It's really interesting that out of the top four, right, um, two of those are basically crypto platforms like BitsharesX and NXT. Well, you you might even consider Ripple to be a platform too. So so, uh, three of those are platforms. How is Ripple so high? I mean, for, for all the scandal that's been happening. Uh, I don't know how to answer that question. I'm scratching my head. I don't, I don't know either. I think it's not important to necessarily focus on the price itself uh, because really the market capitalization and the, with the price volatility that's going on, the, the, a lot of these coins don't really have enough liquidity to be accurately priced. But nevertheless, I think the relative movement is interesting to look. 
I wonder if market capitalization is even like really a good, it's like, is IQ a good measure of intelligence? It's a measure, but it may not be a good one, right? Because like, what's the trading volume on each of these coins? Would there be any chance that someone actually wants to buy a significant amount of any of these coins? Of course, if they did start buying or somebody started selling, then the price would change. Right. Well, let's answer that question. If you look at the trading volume for the last 24 hours, Viacoin jumps up from 19th position to 4th. Monero jumps into the top 10 rankings at 6th. And so you have a couple of interesting other coins jumping in there in the mix, and and a couple of them disappear. Dogecoin stays pretty much where it was. So there's some interesting things going on with this uh, ranking. If you look at the top 10, in fact, Namecoin and MadeSafeCoin are 9 and 10 by market capitalization, which which means that 5 of the top 10 or 50% of them are platforms. Uh, really telling. So, I mean, I know you've said in the past, Andreas, that there's this idea that when there's a new technology that comes out, one of the steps along the way is fragmentation. And you think that altcoins are kind of representing that. And then there's the collapse back together. I'm totally butchering what you said, but could you just go over that again? Do you think this is kind of like the next step in the evolution of cryptocurrency? What's interesting is that when a new technology emerges in the very beginning, you're going to have experimentation because when people understand that something like the blockchain is inherently useful, they may not necessarily agree with the parameters of the first implementation and then for try their own alternative. And so you have experimentation, which leads to fragmentation of the market. And it takes until that technology reaches a level of some stability and maturity in the market before you start seeing consolidation and and finally standardization. It's interesting to look at a parallel here, which is the internet and some of the underlying networking technologies such as Ethernet. You know, today, the vast majority of data center networking and local area networking, and by vast majority, I'm thinking probably in the 99.9% is Ethernet. It's not the same Ethernet as it was back in the mid-80s or early 90s, but it's still called Ethernet. It's very similar in, in many ways. And the overwhelmingly huge majority of uh, traffic that is between networks, routed traffic is, is TCP IP, internet traffic. Um, but it wasn't always like that. I mean, people forget that when, um, when Ethernet first came out, it was competing fiercely against Token Ring, Banian Vines, and probably butchering it. I can't even remember. There was a, there was a bunch of others. And then you had uh, various uh, intermediary protocols that uh, in, in some ways looked like a layer two protocol, in some ways looked like a layer three protocol. For example, uh, asynchronous transfer mode or ATM, which was competing uh, for, to be the backbone for telecom networks and uh, SDH Sonnet, which was a structured fiber network and ISDN and X25 and all of these other protocols were competing in the early days to be the variant of interconnecting networks. And all of those are pretty much eclipsed nowadays. There's, there's probably still X25 networks out there. That's probably still ISDN. I don't think there's any token ring. I'd be surprised. You might find it in some. Yeah, there is ISDN. It's on the way out. It's used for voiceover sometimes too. <laughs> to right. 
and it's just poor quality. You know, it's just a dated kind of technology. Yeah, antediluvian networks where you have X25 maybe. I recently found out that uh, the interconnect for air traffic control is using teletype, wow. which is which is very interesting. So, there, you know, all technologies never completely die. They just wither until, the, but you can still find them in pockets. But here's the point. Before Ethernet became dominant and before TCP IP became dominant, they both had to compete against a broad variety. And at some point, there were a lot of competing protocols for both of those, for layer two and layer three. Nowadays, they're dominant. There's, there's no question about which protocol you should use for layer three or layer two. Those are pretty much decided questions, at least for the current evolution of technology. So I think the same thing is happening with uh, currencies, with digital currencies, decentralized digital currencies based on the blockchain technology. We're still in the phase where we have massive experimentation and that leads to fragmentation. Eventually, once technologies mature, you'd expect uh, things to coalesce a bit, to consolidate, and you'll see efforts at standardization, you'll see efforts at optimization, uh, because at some point... There are more benefits to using the dominant protocol and standardizing on that to avoid interoperability and compatibility problems. But for now, we live in the golden age of experimentation in in cryptocurrencies. And there's this beautiful kind of cauldron of activity and innovation going on. The question that remains, I guess, is are most of these altcoins going to go the way of these dated technologies that are going to go the way of uh, Betamax or whatever, <laughs> you know, are they going to be um, obsolete? And I guess if you believed in them, then you'd be buying them now because they're cheap relative to what they have been. But it doesn't seem like a lot of people are doing that. I think it really depends on the coin. I mean, some of these coins may survive. They may find a unique niche where they're uniquely suited to a particular application or a particular community or a particular function. And that allows them to thrive alongside Bitcoin in synergy with Bitcoin. Bitcoin has obviously achieved a certain degree of market acceptance, which due to its size, it's unlikely to be completely displaced. But other altcoins may uh, coexist with Bitcoin and explore a particular niche market. The vast yeah, majority... I said altcoins before. I was, I was really thinking of like some of the altcoins that are just straight up altcoins, not crypto platforms, have basically other functions related to the blockchain other than just being kind of a copy of Bitcoin. Well, I mean, even those may have particular niches and features that are unique. For example, one of the interesting ones, I think, is the whole group of coins that are focused on anonymity. And we're going to be talking a bit about the explosion of alts in that particular area. Coins focused on anonymity are obviously a particular niche. And if there's a function that Bitcoin can't do or isn't doing for whatever reason, uh, coins in that niche may well thrive independently of Bitcoin for that particular application, even if they don't have a platform. I feel like People have been so burned by just the amount of altcoins out there that turned out to be scams or kind of exploit the community or were just kind of being promoted to make money. I mean, to be fair, as long as there's an economic incentive for altcoins to be created, as long as people can basically make money by creating altcoins, they will. You know, like it's they're not going to go away. But it seems like people have just kind of 
been burned so many times by altcoins that there's a lot of skepticism out there. And maybe that prevents people from seeing some unique or beneficial qualities that certain altcoins do have. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. Right now, coin market cap is listing 471 currencies. Uh, wow. Last time I looked, it was 450 something. So, and that's just the top 470. I'm sure there's more out there. <laughs> there. There are more out there that we've never heard of. Yeah, I think it's it's going to be true for a very long time, to, and perhaps permanently, that the vast majority of altcoins will be not particularly interesting. They won't offer any massively differentiating features. There'll be a me-too attempt. And in, in many cases, they're going to be essentially scam coins, pump and dump coins. But that doesn't mean that all of them are. There may be a few exceptions. And I, I can't say which ones those are. I don't know, really. I have a few that I'm interested in. You know, you never know. I think what's 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 more important here is the level of activity. As long as people create new things because they believe that there's a reason to differentiate from Bitcoin, that will allow us to experiment. And you know, if the only lesson we're learning is beware of scam coins, that's a that's a valuable lesson too. Yeah, it is. Especially when in the realm of anonymity. I mean, especially in that area, there's a demand for it. People want to be able to use cryptocurrency anonymously to preserve their financial privacy. There have been maybe some good faith attempts to provide that to people, but also some that are just really not providing that, but trying to kind of take advantage of people's hunger for it. Yeah, exactly. The anonymity niche is a, is a very specific niche, and it's easy to differentiate there and to, to explain to people exactly how you're differentiating. It's the most obvious application of cryptocurrencies that is not easily fulfilled by Bitcoin at the moment. But again, you know, look at some of the other coins out there and how they've been faring. It's, it's really quite shocking how quickly a coin might rise to a high level of market capitalization and then very quickly break and lose value. I'm looking at uh, Dogecoin here, for example. It reached a market capitalization exceeding $90 million. And that was in mid-February. And now we're looking at September. And the market capitalization is, what, 12 million? That's a pretty drastic difference. I mean, I remember us talking last December when Bitcoin was up around $1,200 trading at its all-time high about the rally in altcoins. And it seemed like there were lots of altcoins that were just rallying kind of made, kind of for uh, reasons that seemed a little bit elusive. Like you know, perhaps people were just thinking, oh, well, a Bitcoin is too expensive. I can't afford that. I think I'll buy some X coin instead, you know, whichever coin they, they wanted. So all these altcoins are rallying. Now they're, we're seeing kind of the opposite happen. They're being hit really hard when Bitcoin's down a little bit. So are they just kind of expressing these extremes of uh, what's going on with Bitcoin? Well, there seem to be two components to that. One is that all altcoins essentially elastically are connected to the Bitcoin price. So you know, if Bitcoin goes down by 50%, you know, take Dogecoin, for example, is down by 80%. Well, 
some of that, if not most of that, is is just the decline of the overall market with Bitcoin leading and Dogecoin following. And some of that is a component of Dogecoin's own drop in popularity. And so you can essentially remove one of the factors if you took out the relative difference in, in Bitcoin's price from, from the Dogecoin movement and then looked at uh, the excess movement, if you like, of Dogecoin. Tor Demeester has done a really nice analysis. Uh, he's He's a young analyst who works in financial analysis and looks at the overall market. And one of the things that I found very interesting was his view of the altcoins as essentially an overflow uh, system where when the price of Bitcoin goes up and Bitcoin becomes too expensive in the minds of many investors or buyers, they flow into the altcoins. And then if the price of Bitcoin declines, then you see this outflow from the altcoins. So essentially you have this, uh, lagging, this, this lagging following of the alternative currencies vis-a-vis the price of Bitcoin. I think that theory seems to apply quite well. And the evidence, the market evidence seems to follow that theory quite nicely. And then you can remove that factor from the overall movement. I've seen his analysis and I mean, maybe you would know better than I would, but I'm sure that happens in other sectors like with tech stocks or whatever, you know, Google or Apple is too expensive. So I'll buy this other company, you know, and perhaps that'll give me that meteoric rise that I'm looking for. Yeah, well, in in other markets, uh, the situation is is rather dire because today there is this hunt for yield and there is no yield left anywhere. Everything is inflated. Bubbles have inflated everywhere. Too much money poured into an economy with not enough productivity. So for mainstream investors, you've seen this exodus into cash because most of the other investments are already at all-time highs, far exceeding you know the underpinnings in terms of productivity, price earnings ratios, and all of those things that you would expect. Uh, the fundamentals are not there, and you've got these giant inflated bubbles. The one interesting thing about the cryptocurrency market is that there, there's still a, a lot of possibility in it from the perspective of an investor, but it, but it's got such high volatility that it takes a very strong stomach or a very diversified portfolio to be in it with some degree of safety and prudence. Couldn't you say the same? Almost, I, I agree that the Bitcoin sector has a lot of potential, especially in the minds of investors, but. I don't know. A lot of these Bitcoin companies are going to fail. The ones that are getting funding now and have been getting funding over the past year or so. Well, 90% of them are going to fail. If we look at, um, you know, the statistics in the broader economy, um, nine out of 10 startups fail. Now in the Bitcoin space is probably going to be 95 out of a hundred, um, or even potentially 99 out of a hundred. The, the good news is that. That's investors risking their money in high-risk ventures where they need to be diversified. And the community as a whole benefits because even if 95 of these companies out of 100 fail, they still explore 95 different areas of the market. And if the only lesson they teach us is there's no market there, that's still a very valuable lesson. Uh, And they may learn some other lessons along the way that will help other companies thrive later. Uh, This is all great for the market as a whole, all of this investment, even if the individual companies fail. You have to expect in an area of technology that is so new, 
that the rate of failure of startups is going to be much higher, especially when you have a lot of unscrupulous actors, which unfortunately we do have in this space. Hmm. And everything you just said could also apply to altcoins, you know, in relation to Bitcoin. Absolutely. Yeah. I can look at altcoins and watch, you know, 999 out of a thousand altcoins fail and still think that the altcoin market has something unique to offer. And that is a giant field of experimentation. And you can't possibly, at least in my mind, you can't exclude the possibility that out of that boiling cauldron of innovation, something unique will pop up that will end up becoming a big market. This episode is brought to you by CryptoKit.com. The magic word for this episode is ULTRA. That's U-L-T-R-A. ULTRA. You've got until the 17th of September to visit Let'sTalkBitcoin.com and enter the magic word for your share of the LTB coin listener rewards. Let's get back to Stephanie and Andreas. a very interesting story and I, I like to say first of all that I have no answers here but a lot of questions have been raised and I think it's very interesting there is a big drawn out fight going on between two opposing communities uh, together with just never ending accu- accusations of scams and pump and dumps and trolling and fraud and all kinds of things from both sides I hate to do the he said she said kind of uh, juxtaposition journalism, I think it's interesting to look into some of the things that people have supposedly revealed in this space. I would like to learn more, but I have not had any firsthand research of this topic. Perhaps it might uh, be a good topic to discuss with a guest further on. Let's start with the uh, beginning. So CryptoNote. CryptoNote is a altcoin platform, if you like, or altcoin reference, which implements anonymity features. So CryptoNote came out uh, with a white paper and then a reference implementation. CryptoNote itself is designed to reset its blockchain at regular intervals so that it's not in itself useful. And instead uh, for other coins to be forked off CryptoNote. So CryptoNote is essentially implementing the reference implementation and test network. And then other coins with different names are forked off of CryptoNote. CryptoNote itself uh, seems to be a relatively independent build of the same principles as Bitcoin. So it's a blockchain currency, uh, but it's not based on the Bitcoin source code. And it implements some interesting anonymity features, including uh, ring join based payments by default. Ring join is, is a, if you know what coin join is, it's a, it's a similar type of anonymization. The crypto notes technology and the software behind it have been reviewed by some very, very smart cryptographers. Probably leading among those is uh, Gregory Maxwell, who's one of the core developers. He's a freaking genius when it comes to cryptography. He's the, inventor of CoinJoin, uh, and a bunch of other very important developments in cryptocurrencies. 
you know, I have a lot of ex- uh, respect for Greg um, experience and skills in this space. And he's done some work on, on crypto notes and given it kind of the nod of approval in t- purely in terms of the technology. Now from crypto notes, a whole bunch of alternative coins were forked. The first one was Bitcoin in, I believe, November of 2013. And Bitcoin, B-Y-T-E-C-O-I-N. First of all, a quick note there. There was another Bitcoin. And that other Bitcoin was developed. And I believe, yeah, the other Bitcoin was uh, currency shortcode BTE. And the new Bitcoin is currency shortcode BCN. They're very different. Jeez, that sounds so, this is so confusing. (laughs) It's just, yeah, it's a name overlap. The, the old Bitcoin had nothing to do with any of this. But basically, we've got a clone of crypto node called Bitcoin BCN. And that's one of the first altcoins that was developed, or it was the first fork of crypto nodes. Since then, okay. um, eight other forks have happened, including Monero, which is also um, very well known and is now ranking with the highest capitalization among the crypto node children. Let's call them all crypto node children. So these coins have baked into the protocol some privacy features, which is what people have been crying out for with Bitcoin for a long time. I think a lot of people want that. Um, has that been vetted? Like, I know it's been vetted, but like, what were the results? Like, is this actually private anonymous? Like, is this really kind of solving that problem? Yeah, so um, Greg Maxwell, who's very well known in the space, and a few others have looked at this and said that it is solid cryptography. Uh, it's well implemented. And but I know it, that uh, CoinJoin has like an, an issue with it, right? Like it wasn't really anonymous. There was some research that got published on that, I think by Christoph Atlas. Let me look that up. Well, uh, yeah, Christoph actually did a review of not CoinJoin the protocol, um, but blockchain's implementation of CoinJoin, blockchain the company within the blockchain wallet as an implementation of CoinJoin. And Christoph did a review of that and um, he discovered that there was uh, that you could derive statistical correlation between outputs depending on the number of rounds and with with uh, with some effort by uh, analysis, statistical analysis, you can derive correlation between outputs. Now, okay. that's the specific implementation. This is ring join. Coin join itself, um, you know, d- doesn't, you know, you can implement it a number of different ways and um, it provides pretty strong anonymity, not complete anonymity because you can always figure out statistically what outputs, but you don't have very high accuracy or correlation. Uh, this uses ring join, which is slightly different, but also a very strong anonymity tool. And the technology is solid. People, people who've looked at it said, you know, crypto node, great anonymity features, solid technology. Mm-hmm. Okay. The, prob- the problem isn't with it. Te- so here comes the scandal. Um, if I can call it that. Yes, please. <laughs> so on August 15th, um, a poster on Bitcoin Talk uh, wrote a very long and detailed post which had the results of some research, I should say, that uh, this this user had done uh, into the origins of CryptoNote as well as Bitcoin. Now, one of the interesting things about CryptoNote is that the team behind it is itself anonymous. There's a whole bunch of names listed on the website. Johannes Meyer, Morris Plank, Max Jameson, Brandon Hawking, K. 
Catherine Irwin, Albert Werner, and Marich Pliskov. Um, no one's ever heard of these people before. <laughs> <laughs> But they sound German. I mean, that's legit, right? (laughs) Yeah. And um, and so these are most likely pseudonyms, uh, which, you know, why not? Satoshi Nakamoto is a pseudonym, too. It's not clear that they're pseudonyms. They uh, they are presented as if they're real people. um, And yet no one's heard of them in the in the crypto community. And so it, it kind of makes sense. I mean, that's not a red flag in itself. I mean, if you're making an anonymous coin, um, then keeping the developers anonymous or pseudonymous would make sense. Here's, here's, the, here's where the interesting thing comes in. So the user who did this analysis looked at the two papers, the two white papers published, V1 and V2. One of the claims made by the authors was that this technology was two years in the making. And to validate that claim, they presented two white papers, uh, V1 of the paper two years old and V2 of the paper slightly more recent. The poster on Bitcoin Talk did an analysis of the PDF and makes a pretty compelling argument that uh, both of the PDFs had their dates forged and that in fact, whereas the PDFs claim to be two years old, they appear to, to have been constructed not only much more recently, but that V2 was written before V1. So V1 has some um, uh, references, citations at the bottom of papers that actually weren't out at the times that V1 was supposedly published, and that are references and citations for things that are not in the paper but only exists as quotes or references in the V2 paper. So it looks like copy-paste job that was done badly. The citations were not removed, were left in there from V2. Oh and boy. V1 was created retroactively as an earlier version, and both of them were signed much later. So, okay, it's one thing to fake dates on a white paper, and of course that's suspicious, and of course the names, you know, nobody knows who these people are. I even saw an allegation on the Bitcoin Pack forum that they could be extraterrestrials, which is, I guess, that shows the level to which this is going. Uh, but so it's one thing to fake timestamps on documents, but they also faked something in the Bitcoin blockchain too. Is that right? And there was some kind of financial benefit from that, right? So the the Bitcoin blockchain essentially is pre-mined. Um, and that pre-mining has fake dates in it as well, apparently. Um, so it now appears that both of these things uh, really came out in March and April of 2014 and were created contemporaneously. And so was the initial pre-mined blockchain of Bitcoin. Uh, all and when the they had claimed that it was, it had been like two years in the making, it was actually like two months in the making. Uh, yeah, exactly. Okay. On, to- on top of that, um, and so there's essentially two years of fake mining with 82% of uh, the Bitcoin coin pre-mined um, with this fake pre-mining of two years with all of the timestamps fake. That's the allegation. Wow. On top of that, the secondary allegation, if you like, is that the other seven coins that were created as forks of crypto notes that 
make it look that people are very like people are very interested in the CryptoNotes Foundation and reference implementation and are implementing it in all kinds of different coins were all in fact created by the very same creators of CryptoNote and Bytecoin. They share all of the same hosting infrastructure. They have the same DNS providers, the same web providers, the same who is providers, the same registers, registrars rather. And so it appears. Wow. Um, How does someone think they could put this past these conspiracy theorists? people. <laughs> <laughs> Who thought they could get away with this? I mean, a lot of research to do to find out the truth, but somebody's going to do that. Right? Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, in this community, there's plenty of people yeah. with too much time on their hands willing to solve puzzles. Uh, and they'll and make I mean conspiracy. that in the most complimentary way. That's what I'm calling these people conspiracy theorists. I it's mean, awesome. Like, it's great. <laughs> right. You, you, you get this incredible level of fact checking, which at times is um, verges on the ridiculous in terms of conspiracy theories. Um, you know, I, you, you, I'll, I'll make an announcement about something that's factually only true. Conspir- it's only a conspiracy if you're wrong. <laughs> right. Um, well, no, I mean, I've seen, I've seen times when I'll make an announcement about something and people will spin these very elaborate conspiracy theories that have no basis in truth. And, and that's annoying. What's the best one that you've heard? Like, Andreas is actually an extraterrestrial, an AI. I have heard the Andreas is Satoshi, which is uh-huh. patently ridiculous. I am uh, nowhere near that smart and <laughs> or skilled, so forget that. But no, I mean, I've heard you, you hear all kinds of different things. Um, the thing is, in this particular case, this is exactly the kind of scrutiny you want. The evidence around the faking of the dates in the PDF is pretty compelling. That's something of a concern. Here's the problem, though. Even with all of this, the crypto note implementation is still a compelling and interesting implementation of anonymity features validated independently by a whole bunch of really smart cryptographers. So you've got a good platform. From that, you seem to have a couple of scam coins being spun out that were pre-mined and a whole bunch of other scam coins being spun out that were intended really to make it look like there was a lot more activity, together with a whole bunch of sock puppet social media accounts used to make it look like there's a whole big community and a lot of development going on. And then within all of this, you've got one coin Monero XMR, uh, which is a clone of CryptoCoin, but which in a surprising move, I guess, was taken over by a community of followers. So it was developed by someone originally. I'm not sure who. I think it was, again, one of the anonymous or pseudonymous creators of CryptoNode, perhaps. But then it developed a community around it, and the community kind of did a hostile takeover, if you like, or friendly takeover of the Mm -hmm. development effort and built a real community. Um, And Monero actually became very, very uh, popular compared to the other crypto node coins and has a fiercely independent community. Or does it? Because the second posting on Bitcoin Talk from August 25th 10 days later actually says that Monero is also a scam that all of the community in Monero are a bunch of sock puppets and trolls and provides a whole bunch of more proof um, about that, uh, supposedly. God. You read this... 
reading these for, I mean, like it's a full-time job to read this stuff. I don't understand how people have the time to fact check. I mean, bless them. It's great that they have the, the time to connect the dots and, you know, put together the evidence on these things. But God, it's just so much effort to keep up with all this stuff. How do you know what's real in an efficient way? <laughs> Well, yeah, exactly. Right now, I have no idea what's real. What I've seen is um, there, there, there's, I think, one of the things that seems to be pretty clear is that some of the signatures or rather some of the dates on the PDFs for crypto notes were faked. But even that, I can't really tell for sure. So the evidence seems compelling. I've looked at the PDFs myself um, and it, it seems to have these little what I call them footprints that indicate something fishy was going on there. But all of the rest of it, uh, who's a sock puppet and who's not, who has a fake community and who's not, what's being pre-mined and what's not, who has real developers behind them doing real work and who doesn't, I really don't know anymore. It's all so confusing. And so I would love to hear feedback from our audience to try to help us understand this because, you know, again, I'll go back to the original premise. It appears the crypto note has some very interesting anonymity features. And despite all of this, you know, bullshit that's going on in terms of pre-mining and scam coins and fake communities and really, really aggressive trolling back and forth between these various communities. The bottom line is that there's some good technology here, and it would be really a shame if it went to waste because of all of this bullshit. Well, now here's where I get conspiratorial. I mean, is it possible that this is all just a ploy to like distract people from the actual important information in here, which is that there is a good technology that could be useful? Why not? It wouldn't be the first time that organizations run disinformation campaigns. There are professional right. companies that you can hire as a either a large corporation or a state actor, or you can run them yourself. But there, there's certainly companies that will do that, that will build hundreds and hundreds of sock puppet accounts and do um, a mass campaign of disinformation, discredit proponents of a certain technology, glorify opponents, feed disinformation, create disruption. And in many cases, you know, there is no point to it. It's all just to muddy the waters and put enough trolling in there until no one can discern what's actually happening. In my opinion, most of the Reddit, the Bitcoin subreddit, is absolutely full of that. Mm. And <laughs> right? the Bitcoin forum. I mean, yeah, I'm not the only one to say that either. Neither are you. <laughs> right. Um, I, I've, uh, I've arrived at the conclusion that there is not a single public person in Bitcoin, a well-known person in Bitcoin, who has not been not only thoroughly smeared, but also who doesn't have recurring conspiracy theory narratives attached to every post they make. So no one escapes this. I'm, I wouldn't say a victim of it, but I've been subjected to it. Every single one of the core developers has been subjected to it. Every single one of the major investors or owners in one of the well-known companies in Bitcoin has been subjected to it. Every single creator of every altcoin. If you go through and look at Reddit and Bitcoin talk, not only do they get trolled to death, but there, there are specific narratives. And as soon as one of these people posts something or their name is mentioned in a post, out comes the trolling narrative 
to smear them. I don't think that's a coincidence. Either we have the most viciously um, nasty community in the world, or there are some people actively trying to create this. Maybe it's both. (laughs) What else do we say about that topic? I mean, I think that's a good place to end off. Um, Should we go into talking about the, not from the online community, but the in-person Bitcoin community and talking about Bitcoin conferences? Yeah, that would be great. You know, you can get really, (laughs) oh boy, I I agree with you when you said that uh, there's just so much so much trolling and disinformation that's obviously going on online. And it's been cited as one of the reasons that perhaps women tend to avoid these places online or just avoid that revealing that they're women. Uh, I don't personally use them, you know, uh, Reddit, r slash Bitcoin or the Bitcoin forum. I'm sure I've been trolled in my absence, but whatever. I'm, I've got a life and I would rather live it outside of those things. But yeah, like um, in the in-person world, I'm sure there's some of that that goes on as well, but it's a little bit harder to hide behind a screen and just do uh, some of these over tactics. When you're actually at a Bitcoin conference with people, then you're meeting people face to face, right? You know, I had a friend say to me the other day, I don't think Bitcoin is in a bubble, but I think uh, Bitcoin conferences are in a bubble. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of truth to that. There have just been so many conferences over the past year. We've covered, we've talked about it a lot on the show. You know, I think all three of us, you, me, and Adam, have expressed on the show that at times we feel a little bit burned out on the number of Bitcoin conferences, and we want to be there, and we like to be there, and we like to actually network in person with people, but they get to a certain point where it's hard to get work done because there's just so much travel and so many Bitcoin conferences happening. So far, in 2014, I was invited to speak at 48 different conferences to speak about Bitcoin. I turned down 42 of them because of a lack of time, obviously. And here's the interesting thing. A year and a half ago, we all went to the first major conference organized by the foundation, April 2013, San Jose, California. And at the time, there was one conference. I think it was the second one organized by the foundation, but it was the first one that got a real crowd. And that wasn't too long ago. That was a (laughs) little more than like a year and a half ago. Not even. 18 months months later, there's a conference every single week somewhere in the world about Bitcoin. Here's the interesting thing. I think we're now moving to the second stage, which is really interesting to me, which is, not conferences um, by Bitcoin, of Bitcoin, for Bitcoin, and about Bitcoin, but the presence of Bitcoin topics in conferences outside of Bitcoin, whether that's South by Southwest, whether it's TED, whether it's uh, Money 2020, or other conferences in an even broader space. I'll be speaking at the Cybercrime Symposium in 2014, uh, coming up in November in New Hampshire. Uh, That is a conference outside of Bitcoin. It's about electronic and uh, digital cybersecurity and cybercrime with an emphasis on financial, healthcare, and defense. And uh, that's, a you know, Bitcoin is just one of a broad range of topics. And now suddenly we're talking about Bitcoin security in a mainstream security conference. I'm very interested in participating in those types of conferences. And I think that's a very big part of Bitcoin growing up. 
I agree with you there. Sort of getting out of the bubble or getting out of the insular kind of community of true believers and reaching out outside of that community to other people who haven't really heard about Bitcoin yet, or maybe they're just hearing about it for the first time. What we're seeing now is um, there's a few, obviously, major companies in Bitcoin like BitPay and Coinbase that are starting to sponsor these major events. BitPay is sponsoring the uh, Money 2020 conference. The biggest was the biggest sponsor. Did that already happen or? No, it's coming up for the next one. They are like a major sponsor of that conference, right? So that's the November 2nd to November 5th, 2014. At the Aria Las Vegas Money 2020, six and a half thousand attendees and in the 2014 sponsors, platinum sponsors, five star sponsors, Accenture, American Express, Bank of America, BitPay are listed as the first four. But from what I read in some Bitcoin related news, BitPay was the largest sponsor in this particular event. Yeah, thanks for having the details there, Andreas. I appreciate that. Uh, but that's very interesting. We've also seen BitPay sponsor this big, um, what was it, the big sporting event? I don't even know the name of it. Well, don't ask me. I have no <laughs> idea. But <laughs> In Florida, there was some, some bowl. Pretty sure it involved balls. <laughs> yeah, so we're seeing these mainstream conferences now having Bitcoin as a topic. Two years the ago, South by Southwest... Bowl. That's what oh, it there was. We go. Yeah. The St. Petersburg Bowl, which is a, what even sport is this? It looks like a football game, but don't quote me on that. Anyway, go, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> yeah, the other one is uh, South by Southwest. Um, two years ago, not a single mention of uh, Bitcoin. This past South by Southwest, it was a couple of months ago, I guess, um, Bitcoin had a huge presence. It was talked about throughout the conference. There were a couple of big presentations. In the next South by Southwest now, in March of 2015, there's already a number of people working on broad-ranging proposals for a range of Bitcoin topics. And I'm hoping to, to speak there as well. I'm really focused for the next 12 months doing as many mainstream conferences with a Bitcoin topic rather than Bitcoin conferences and bringing Bitcoin to a much more mainstream audience. My personal experience with that was really started with a Joe Rogan experience, the podcast show with Joe mm-hmm. Rogan. Yeah. You know, Joe had no idea what Bitcoin was. Um, and he invited me. I did that twice. I'm hoping to go again. But it was so amazing to see what happens when you bring this topic in easily understandable terms to a mainstream audience. Thousands and thousands of people joined the community because of that one podcast. And we can do that, you know, times 10 in the next 12 months. So I really think 2015 and the end of 2014 will really be the year of Bitcoin as a topic in mainstream conferences. Maybe that means the Bitcoin conference itself. I'm with you there, Andreas. I mean, I kind of uh, came to the same conclusion early 2014 when I gave a talk about Bitcoin to an audience that didn't really know much about Bitcoin. It just seemed like way more of a useful and efficient use of my time than to be kind of preaching to the choir at these Bitcoin conferences. And to be honest, I don't have a Bitcoin company. I don't really do anything special in Bitcoin. I'm just kind of a commentator. And I mean, I have my own business and I use Bitcoin in my business as a voice actor, but 
I'm not like on the bleeding edge of Bitcoin technology that I can really be talking to these crowds, but I can definitely explain Bitcoin to people who are beginners for sure. And so that's what I've kind of decided to do. And it sounds like you have too. Yeah, I, I, I see my role more as a Bitcoin ambassador to mainstream audiences. And I've done a couple of things related to that, but certainly that's going to be my focus for, tw- for the end of 2014 and 2015. That, that doesn't mean I'm not going to be doing the Bitcoin conferences themselves. I think a lot of them, especially the ones that are community driven, are very interesting and, uh, and they provide a great opportunity to meet up with many of my friends in the community and, and see many of the people I know in the space. But, you know, f- for next year, um, I'm making a big push to do um, TED, if I can, perhaps TEDx and TED-Ed type conferences, mm, uh, yes. South, South by Southwest and mainstream um, IT security and um, networking conferences. So bringing that to a much broader Audience. And then the other one that I think is really interesting is the growth of the college campus networks. So especially with initiatives like CCN, the Crypto College Network, um, and that's um, an association of uh, uh, campus-based student organizations focused on Bitcoin. And CCN has been growing really, really fast. I think there's a tremendous opportunity there to go to student organizations and audiences that are mainstream, not necessarily computer science, but cross-discipline, computer science, finance, law, business administration, um, entrepreneurial students, and, and go and talk about Bitcoin as a career choice, as an industry, and bring Bitcoin to an entirely new audience of young people. Do you ever feel like within the Bitcoin conferences, it gets a little bit competitive? I don't know. Like I I get this vibe of like everyone's kind of trying to one up each other. Like (laughs) I'm on the forefront. No, I'm on the forefront. I just got this much funding. No, I got this much funding. You know, that's, that's kind of the environment that I think puts a lot of pressure on people. Um, I recently saw this post on Reddit from Jason King, even though I just said I don't use Reddit, but I, I came across it because a lot of people shared it, because I think it resonated with a lot of people, where he said basically some prominent people in the Bitcoin world have gotten in touch with them and said that they were contemplating suicide because there was just so much pressure in this world to, you know, to be the best and to get more funding and to, you know, have the most biggest business. And it just all gets to be too much. Step away from the keyboard if that's uh, is that's how you feel about this industry. It's not worth it at all. But you know, here's the interesting thing. I think to play out that thought, if really the mainstream companies in Bitcoin are trying to outplay each other and outsponsor each other and make big splashy announcements, maybe this is the time when we should see more Bitcoin conferences with. Guess what? Lower ticket fees. I mean, come on. You can't be charging 500 bucks to go to a Bitcoin conference when you have 15 platinum sponsors. That is greed. If we're going to bring Bitcoin to a broader audience and allow people who aren't in Bitcoin or people who are in Bitcoin or, and are new are looking to do it as a career, are students or are currently unemployed, you can't expect people to pony up $500 when you're already making uh, tens of thousands of dollars from sponsors. 
So I'm hoping we'll see a bit more competition to lower prices for Bitcoin events um, so that more people can attend. Because really, some of these events are horribly expensive. And if all of these companies are sponsoring and trying to make big splashy announcements, well, they can pick up a bigger part of the tab. Yeah, I think there have been a lot of people who have entered the Bitcoin conference space recently who have never really organized conferences before. They just kind of saw an opportunity and said, yeah, let's organize a conference. How hard could it be, right? But then they encounter all these organizational issues, of course, as, as anyone who's trying to put together an event like that does. And so now with the specialization of Bitcoin conferences, with them becoming a little bit more niche and specific, I share your hope that we will see some more community-focused, more affordable types of events. I'd like to add to that the idea of more focused Bitcoin events. We've seen really Bitcoin go into three different directions. You have people like uh, Jason King organizing conferences that are focused primarily on the charity, non-governmental organizations, and non-profit organizations. So Bitcoin for charity and non-profits. I think that's a great direction to specialize in. We're also seeing a number of conferences that are focused on the investor side. So there are conferences that have a lot of uh, presence by banking organizations, investors, and VCs. You can easily see which ones those are. Neither I nor Stephanie will be appearing there. (laughs) 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 Lots of suits, not too many ponytails. I think the third class of conferences that we really need to see some specialization, and I'm hoping we see that a lot more in 2014 and 2015, is uh, conferences focused on software development. So cryptocurrency software development, conferences with developers, with workshops, with an emphasis on software engineering, code development, workshops, hackathons, uh, job opportunities, combined perhaps with job fairs. Um, we've seen a lot of success with a job fair and. Sunnyvale that happened five months ago and uh, or four months ago and then we're going to see more of those happening there's another one happening in New York I believe in a couple of weeks and I, I, I'd like to see uh, cryptocurrency conferences focused on developers and the career choices they're making in terms of specializing in the software of cryptocurrencies and those I will go to <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin Content for today's show is provided by Andreas M. Antonopoulos and Stephanie Murphy. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine, and music was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. See you next time.